Great to have all of you here this morning. Uh, for those of you that I've not had a chance to meet, my name's Kevin Harlan. I serve on the pastoral team here. I actually work across all four campuses, so I see familiar faces here, but it's been a few months uh, since I've been here, and I'm guessing by the fact that you're not sitting very close, you have an idea of what's coming this morning in the sermon. So it's like you read ahead. It's like I'm not even getting anywhere near him. These rows right here uh, scare me by the fact that no one's there. Um, As you may know, we're taking the first half of this year to look through the book of Hebrews to examine closely uh, this book that you find sort of in the last part of the New Testament. Uh, If you want to follow along with me, you might open that up if you're not already there to the book of Hebrews. Uh, We're going to be looking at this in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. Hebrews is thought to be uh, once given as a sermon. It's uh, given to a congregation of uh, early Jewish Christians. And since there wasn't podcasts or CDs or even cassette tapes at that time, uh, they had to, the way a sermon got passed around, it's like, hey, did you hear that sermon from that person over there? And the way it got passed around was in writing. And this written sermon found its way into the Bible. It was circulated through the churches. It was read over and over again. We don't know much about the preacher, which is rare when we're reading the New Testament. Usually we know who it's coming from, but in this case we really don't know. There's been a lot of debate as to who the preacher is. We just don't know. But this we do know about the preacher, is that the preacher was determined to warn this congregation about the direction they were heading and the danger of drift in the Christian faith. This book contains five major warnings, and this morning we come to the third of those warnings. There's actually a lot more I could say about this, but let's face it, you're not really even listening to me. You've tuned me out. I can see that some of you are already napping this early in the sermon because you stayed up too late watching the Olympics. See, I can't even pull that off, right? I was trying to be mean, and you people laughed at me. See, it's like some of you know me. I was trying to get your attention, but you know that, wait a minute, he's not going to do that. I couldn't keep a straight face. Now, I I was just trying to illustrate for you very poorly, by the way, what this writer or this preacher in Hebrews is doing when we come to the 11th verse of chapter 5. You see it there? He just stops in the middle of this teaching about, if you remember last week, this high priest who, who understands us, who relates to us, this priest of the order of Melchizedek, and he realizes he's, his audience is starting to glaze their eyes over a bit, and they've lost interest. And in 5.11, he says this, about this, the things that he had just been talking about, we have much to say, but it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. You've stopped listening to me. It's like he's saying, hey, hey, I'm saying something important here, but you're not listening to me anymore. It's like the preacher's dream, actually, you know, to stop in the middle of a sermon when you realize no one's listening to you anymore. Just, ho, ho, I'm over here. Hang with me. And and by the way, in case you're wondering, we do know when you're sleeping, okay? So I actually had a congregation member once ask me, you know, can you see people when they're asleep? It's, It's like, well, if you can see me, I can see you. All right, so there's a basic rule, just so you know when you're coming into a sermon. I'm 
kind of put the fear of God in you this morning that, yes, I do. And don't try the head and the hands thing. I mean, I know you're sleeping, you know, you're not praying. But back to Hebrews. Here's a warning about the warning that this preacher gives us, that nobody wants to hear this. Nobody wants to hear what these verses have to say. And it's my guess that you don't want to hear this sermon almost as much as I don't want to give it. Scripture contains alarming passages that are meant to warn us, and I will tell you in advance, this is one of the loudest. I completed my uh, writing outline for this message, and I sent it on to our teaching team just to make sure that they knew where I was headed, kind of the direction I was going. And I got this encouraging note from uh, your Pastor Bill. He says, I love this, Kevin, exclamation point. It looks great. Parentheses. I'm just glad it's not me giving it. (laughs) I think that's a wink right there. Uh, Thanks a lot, Bill. Standing in the back, he's going to be quick to escape. By design, warnings are not pleasant. If they were, they wouldn't be a warning, right? They are meant to startle us, to make us uncomfortable. And when we come to this warning in Hebrews 5 and 6, we are not disappointed by the strength of the warning. The preacher sounds this warning that I think highlights three types of faith. The immature faith, the counterfeit faith, and the earnest faith. And the preacher will want all of us to know, as he did his audience then, that it's the type of faith that we have that makes all the difference. So let's continue reading, uh, beginning in verse 12. This passage that we heard Dan read to us. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, the preacher pauses, he stops, he says, hey, you're not even listening to me, and he looks at this congregation, and he calls them out for their immature faith. They've become dull of hearing. And because of it, their growth has been stunted. You see, they've been exposed to good teaching, and yet they're not maturing. And he gives them this vivid picture of inappropriate immaturity. He says they are like adults who are still breastfeeding. Now, I know this may not be the mental picture you wanted this morning, but that's exactly what this preacher is saying. And it's at this point we sort of expect the preacher to say something like this. Okay, so let me go back to the basics. I'll start over, we'll go back to basics, I'll try to help you get it. But if you look with me at chapter 6, you'll see this is not the approach that the preacher takes. Instead, we read that they are urged to move on, to get on with it, to grow up. Do you see what the preacher says? You should leave these elementary teachings behind and move on. Now, it's not that these elementary teachings aren't important. 
These are essential teachings of the faith. This is important for us to get here. It's not that these aren't important. It's just time for them to move on. It's they're stuck in this constant conversation around these basics, and it hasn't, they haven't progressed in their faith. Have you ever find yourself stuck sort of in your comfort zone, the things that you're comfortable talking about and don't like to get outside of that? You can almost hear this congregation sort of saying, let's just keep talking about these things that we know. Eventually we'll feel really smart about these topics. But no, the preacher urges them to move on, to grow up, to get on with it. The preacher gives us, I think, what is the secret sauce to growing up. Hard work. Look back in uh, chapter 5, verse 14. We're told that maturity happens as our discernment is trained by constant practice. Now, the word used for trained here is the word gymnasio. It's the Greek word gymnasio. It's the root word where we get the word, our word, gymnasium. It carries with this this intense idea of physical training, of intense physical training. The Apostle Paul will use this word in his letter to Timothy to urge him on to discipline himself, to train himself for the purpose of godliness. Some of you are here this morning and you are just coasting at the Christian life. You've been stuck on the basics for way too long. And it's time to grow up. Maybe you grew up in a Christian family, you drifted away from the Christian faith or the Christian community for some time and you're just returning. And in your life right now, Sunday morning is the one day or the one moment, the two hours that you even think about God. Now let me say, we're glad you're here. But the Christian faith speaks to every aspect of our life. Being here on Sunday morning is a great start but it's time to grow up. Or maybe you've been in church for a long time and for one reason or another, you're still on the basics. It doesn't really seem as if you've been stretched or or pushed in your thinking or in your faith for quite some time. And you find yourself putting on a good Christian faith when you come, or good Christian face when you come on Sunday, maybe even in a community group or a Bible study. But you always sit quiet, and you're, you rarely learn something new or challenged by God's Word. And I believe in Hebrews here, this preacher would want us to know, and God is speaking, that it's time for us to grow up. I told you you wouldn't like it, right? I I warned you before. And unfortunately, the warning doesn't stop there. As a matter of fact, the intensity grows. Look with me at chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit, shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible for them to restore them again to repentance, 
since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, how we interpret these three verses has been greatly debated over the years by people much smarter than me. So before we move on, it might be helpful for us to just take a few minutes and talk about the various ways this has been interpreted. You see, the debate hinges on this phrase, fall away. The preacher, it's clear, is saying that there are some who were once part of the Christian faith, and now they are not. And to add another element of complexity to this, it's as if the preacher says that once they've fallen away, it's impossible to restore them. Now, there are three primary ways to view this. Some would say that the preacher is talking about genuine Christians who've walked away from their faith, and as a result, they've lost their faith. They are no longer Christians. Some believe, the second option is that some believe that the preacher is presenting this as a hypothetical situation, presenting, if you will, sort of a scary worst-case scenario that couldn't really happen, but just wanting to make it strong and extreme. And then there's a third way of seeing this, that some would say that those, there are some people who enter the church community, they taste of the goodness of the Christian faith, but they aren't really Christians. They're just playing a part. They're faking it, whether intentionally or not. And these people, when they fall away, they will never return to the community again. And here's the problem, is that sometimes we're more concerned about the theological nuances of these three options than we are with the possibility that the preacher in this moment might be talking to us. You see, this warning is loud and clear, and no matter how you interpret these three verses, the ending is the same. Whether you lose your salvation or prove you weren't ever a Christian, you ultimately end up separated from God in eternal punishment. And that is definitely bad news. Now, as I look at these three interpretations, I believe the third one best in, lines up with other teaching in the Scripture. And so when I hear this warning... I believe the preacher is telling us to beware of the danger of a counterfeit faith. In other words, there are people here this morning who may have prayed a prayer, are attending church, have been baptized, who give, who lead. People that you and I think are really good Christians, and they will walk away from the faith rejecting Christ, proving that they never knew him, and yes, end up in eternal punishment. And as they walk away, it will be impossible for them to come back. I told you you wouldn't like it. Now let's be clear. I do not believe that God would ever refuse a person who is truly repentant and hungering for restoration. 
But when we turn our back and walk down this path, our hearts become hard and it becomes increasingly difficult for us to repent and to admit that we were wrong. And the preacher makes this very clear to his Jewish audience and to us today that when we walk away from the faith like this, we are actually among the crowd of people who crucified Jesus. And at this moment, unfortunately, some of you are still only thinking about somebody else. But is it possible that the preacher is talking to you? It's almost as if you can hear the preacher screaming, wake up. The words of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And we are constantly feeling this tug between good and evil. And in one way or another, our lives are never completely authentic. The preacher wants to make sure that we all know it, that you can't fake it with God. Now, let me be clear with one thing, for which I'm sure you'll be most thankful. I am not the judge. I don't stand here today to judge any of you. I will not begin calling names. You can rest easy on that one. That was meant as a joke, by the way. As a matter of fact, my personal preference is to simply encourage you and avoid these types of warnings. Many years ago, I attended a conference and heard a great Scottish preacher that, whose name I've forgotten. I tried to come up with it. I could not get it. Um, and I heard this Scottish preacher give a clear but somewhat boring presentation of the gospel. One of my friends at this conference was sitting right next to me, and during the message, he fell asleep. I don't know what it is. I have this, uh, I just tend to attract people that fall asleep. I don't know what it is. He fell asleep, head in his hands during the message. And at the end of the message, the preacher was at full volume, you know, sort of really trying to bring it home. And he said, if you want to put your faith and trust in Jesus, he slapped the podium, and then he yelled, stand up! My friend was awakened by the slap on the podium, and all he heard was stand up, and he immediately stood up. (laughs) And I grabbed his pant leg and told him to sit down. So I don't want to judge you this morning. I'm not here to judge But I also don't want to pull on your pant leg either. Because while I am not the judge, God is. And this is a matter of life and death, this warning before us. I believe one of the most haunting statements in the Bible can be found in Matthew 7. There are words spoken by Jesus as he's teaching the disciples about the danger of false prophets. And he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So let me just ask this morning. Are you questioning today if you've ever placed your faith in Christ and in Christ alone? Do you sort of have this gnawing sense that You have a counterfeit faith that you're just faking it. You're just trying to look good, just trying to get by. Do you wonder if you're just tasting the goodness of the Christian community? 
but really counting on your good works or your kindness or your ethics for your salvation. Before we move on, let me just encourage you and urge you this morning to examine your life. To use a phrase that's common in our culture today, just to get real. You see, there's no better time than this morning than right now. There's a good chance that when you walk out here, you'll forget completely about this warning. You can end the counterfeit today. Drop the mask. It just requires each of us to admit our weakness, our inability to save ourselves, and to place our faith and hope in the work that Christ did for each of us on the cross. It's that simple. And it's that difficult. You see, some of us aren't so good at admitting we can't do it on our own. Or receiving a gift that we don't deserve. And much like here, at this point in the preacher's sermon, I just have a feeling that there was a silence in the crowd. And the preacher recognized that not everyone sitting out there was immature or counterfeit. And he immediately sought to encourage them again. Look with me at verse 9. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of faith or full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's like the the preacher is saying, this could be you, but we're confident it's not. The preacher, he calls them the beloved or This could also be translated, dear friends. It's the only time that the preacher uses this phrase in the sermon. At what I'm guessing was the most painful, vulnerable point, he says, but beloved, this is not what we hope is true of you. And they applauded them for their earnest faith. This word translated as earnestness here in verse 12 is used 12 times in the New Testament. And it communicates the idea of diligence, striving after, and eagerness. And to those of earnest faith, the preacher says, keep it up. He wants them and us to know that we should strive after faith. And with this, we find, I think, one of the greatest tensions of the Christian life. How do we strive after spiritual growth? without crossing the line where we believe we've done something to earn our salvation. No one has been more helpful to me with this question than Dallas Willard. And if he's not spoken into your life, if he's not stretched you with his thinking, let me encourage you to pick up some of his writing and be stretched. He explains attention this way. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. And the preacher urges us on in our effort. He tells us to keep it up and to not become sluggish. 
And no matter what type of faith you find yourself living this morning, each of us are faced with this question. How can we sleep at night hearing words like these? And I think there's a simple answer. By taking this warning, these warnings seriously. And ultimately, it's not about trusting my ability, but his ability to keep me strong. His faithfulness in keeping me faithful. You see, it'd be easy for each of us to walk away from a sermon like this, from a text like this, only focused on ourselves, which isn't just scary, it's dangerous. And let me just say it, don't trust yourself. Trust the Jesus that we keep learning about, the one who holds the universe by the word of his power, the one who died to save us from our sins, who destroyed the power of death itself. The one who rose again, the great high priest who loves us, accepts us, restores us. It's because of Jesus and only Jesus that we can be sure of better things. Will we keep trusting? Will we place our faith and hope in him, in him alone? Now before we move on, I want us to spend a few moments in quiet thought or prayer, reflection. And I want you to be asking two questions. Who am I trusting? Whether you're a Christian or not, we're all trusting something or someone. Who am I trusting? Where am I placing my hope for salvation? And what will keep me trusting kind of effort do we need to put into this? What specific steps of renewal and maturity is God calling you to this morning? Who am I trusting and what will keep me trusting? Let's pray and reflect for a few moments. Lord, in the quietness of this place, I am just nudged to think that there are likely people here this morning that have never placed their faith and hope in you. Maybe think they have or or have been pretending they have. Or Lord, maybe even this morning and just have never even heard the possibility of a life with you. So, Lord, I want to provide just some space for, for them. Lord, we all know the, in one way or another, the pain of living a counterfeit life. We all feel this line of good and evil running down the middle of our hearts. Lord, we long to be whole. We long to be real. We long to be true. We long to be authentic. And we know we have no hope of that on our own. And it is only because of you. And Lord,
Lord, I pray that uh, for that group of people here this morning, that they would simply let the mask down today. And they would declare these simple words from the heart that they trust in you. Lord, we hear and receive this warning with sober hearts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave us a regular activity that we as his people, his community, should be doing together. The Lord's Supper. It's a small moment, a small moment where we train our powers of discernment by constant practice to use the words of the Hebrews preacher. You see, what we do with our bodies matters. When the world offers a life of self-absorption and isolation and greed and sexual immorality and pride, we choose in this moment instead to eat the solid food of the mature. And so to proclaim once again to each of us, to our senses, to our taste, to our touch, to our smell, the goodness of this gospel, the gospel that we have tasted. We choose this broken bread as a representation of Christ's body broken for us. And we choose to partake of this poor juice that represents his blood for the shed, that his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins, recognizing that each of us are also in need of forgiveness. Now, there are communion stations, two in the front and two in the back. And this morning, if you have placed your faith in Christ, whether it happened just moments ago or early in your life, you are welcome at the table to be reminded again or for the very first time the object of, this, of your faith. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you think, I, I'm just not sure that I'm ready for this. That's okay. Stay right where you are. Or if you would like to pray with someone, maybe you sense that God is speaking to you in one way or the other this morning, we'll have some members of our staff back there in that back corner. Just get up as others are getting up and go back and pray with one of them. Speak about this nudging of your heart. the sense that God is working right now in your hearts. He's invited us to do this. And we invite you to come. Please come.